0: We have Judges chapter 2 this week, and it's perfect because Judges chapter 2 is the perfect um, uh, preparation for Easter, right? It's Palm Sunday, right? It's it's the Sunday where we kind of celebrate the week, preparing up to get to the cross and to get to um, the resurrection. This is the beginning of the Passion Week. We're going to celebrate the cross on Friday at our Good Friday service. Well, this passage is so perfect because this passage is this beautiful explanation of the cross, almost a thousand years before it happened. If you were here last week, we looked at this passage focusing on us, or we looked at it focusing on Israel as representative of us, right? In salvation, we like to talk about our initiative in choosing and believing in God. We like to have The same. We like to have control. So we looked at Judges as a picture of that initiative. What we do and what we choose apart from God. And as we saw, it was not a pretty picture. This passage consists of two main characters, right? There's Israel, right, which is us, and there's God, which is obviously still. God right Israel's initiative our initiative as we saw last week is idolatry and that was the focus we looked at how we naturally seek and pursue and worship things other than God right worship's not a Christian thing worship's not a religious thing worship is a human thing Thing. Everyone is worshiping something. It could be a sports team. It could be pleasure. It could be money. It could be your family. Whatever it is, we all have something that we worship and pursue and love and that serves as sort of our functional God. There's no real atheist. Everyone has a God. It might be yourself. It's something. We are all idolaters. We have this thing we depend on to give us meaning and identity and joy and fulfillment. So in this chapter that we looked at last week, Israel is running after these other gods, not because they like bowing down to stone statues, that's not what idolatry is about, but because of what they think they can get from those idols. Remember, it's all about desire. We always do what we desire. We pursue what we love. Uh, What we think will bring us happiness and fulfillment. And idolatry is simply doing that with anything that is not God. And as we saw last week, it never works. It never delivers. Because the idols that we depend on can never deliver what we need them to because we need something much more, something bigger, something inexhaustible, right? You felt this. There's that thing that you want. I get that thing. I'm good. You get that thing. You're like, ah, I need that thing. There's another thing that I need, right? Nothing ever satisfies us because our, our desires are insatiable. And that's because we were created for God. We need him, but we reject him. Right? That's that's our initiative. That that's last week. Today, I want to look at God's response to that initiative. And this is absolutely foundational. What does God do when his people reject him, rebel against him and run from him? Because if I was God and I was treated as Israel had treated him, my response would have been to, to turn my back, right? I'm done. All right, see you guys later, all right? It's a good thing that I'm, I'm not God, obviously. But, but we all reject and rebel and run from God. So it's really critical that we understand what God's response to that is. Right, this passage is the key to salvation. This is the key to change and growth. This is the key to getting everything that we try to get from our idols, This is where we find ultimate satisfaction, rest, pleasure, fulfillment, and identity. And it is only here. And I want to show you why this morning. This is God's plan, and it's it's brilliant. Um, This is how He works, and it's beautiful. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as we behold, it's as we behold the glory of the Lord, as we look at and stare at and see Christ, it is then that we are changed. Well, our goal this morning is to behold him, right? We all do what we desire. The goal this morning is to better understand him and what what he has done for us so that we can then start to desire that more. And that new desire is going to crowd out some of these old desires that we looked at last week for these idols, right? Behold the Lamb of God. That's that's the goal. That's what we want to do here um, in this time. So let me read the chapter for you first. Judges chapter 2. We read the whole thing last week and it's a little bit long, so I might skip a few parts here and there, but I'll, I'll direct you where I am. So just look down at your copies of the scripture. You can just follow along and I'll read it for you. Um, Judges chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. Verse one, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. Get down to verse eleven. Eleven. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the god of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned away from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all their days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I have commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left, When he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they would take care to walk in the way of the Lord, as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Let me pray for us as we continue. Father, I need you. I need your spirit. Father, we do. My words are very limited in their ability. Father, they can do nothing um, to change someone's heart. So, Father, I ask that your word um, would do what my words cannot. Father, I pray that we would feel the great tension of this passage, the great tension of our lives, the longing and the desire for something more. Father, I pray that you would show us what that something is here in this passage. I pray that you would show us the great solution to the dilemma of our our sin and our separation from you. Father, magnify Christ through your word in this time, Father, and give us a great heart and desire to know him and to love him more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so God's the focus um, this time in this passage. And if you are paying attention, you may have noticed a tension that is just running throughout the this chapter, And if you didn't notice it, my whole goal this morning is to draw that tension out for you. Because recognizing and feeling the weight of this tension is critical to understanding the gospel. We encounter it right off the bat. At the end of verse 1, God says "His people have rejected him, they have rebelled. And he says at the end of verse 1, I will never break my covenant with you. Alright, good. And then there's verse 3. So now, I say, I will not drive them out. Before you. Do you see it? The tension is a little stronger in the Hebrew than than the English. 2 1 and 2 3 should be read like this I said, I will never break my covenant, but I also said, if you compromise with these nations, I will not drive them out. But the promise to drive them out and the promise to give Israel the land was part of the covenant. So God is in effect saying, I will not break my covenant. And I will not do the thing for you that I promised to do in my covenant if you remain disobedient. So he's saying to Israel, basically, you have put me in an impossible situation. You've put me into a seemingly irreconcilable dilemma. And this tension is why we read Exodus 34 earlier in the passage. Flip there if you want to look at it for a second. I've talked about this. This is this is the great dilemma of the old testament and it's the same dilemma in Exodus 34 that we run into here in Judges chapter 2. In Exodus 34, right, you know what's that God has brought Israel to Mount Sinai, he's brought Moses up on the mountain, he, he's given him the law. What was Israel doing? Well, they're creating Idols and gods, giant cows to, to worship. Moses comes down. What in the world are you doing? Um, the, the, his law is broken. Um, God has mercy and spares the people. He brings Moses back up on the mountain and is giving him the law again um, in this Exodus 34. And in verse 6, God reveals himself. He's displaying his nature and his character. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, God's name. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Beautiful, right? We're we're great with God like this. God is love. We love that. We're comfortable with that. And it's true. This is who our God is. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He forgives transgression and sin. But the verse keeps going and it complicates everything for us. He forgives transgression and sin, but then the next words out of God's mouth are, but who will by no means clear the guilty? What? Right? You see it, right? You feel the tension. He forgives sin. What does sin do? It brings guilt. It's wrongdoing. But then he will by no means clear the guilty. He forgives sin, but he punishes the guilty. Well, the sinners are are guilty. It almost seems like he's contradicting himself here. And this is it. This is the great riddle, the great dilemma of the Old Testament, the great tension that you must understand and that you must feel if you're going to grasp the glory of the gospel of grace. This revelation that God gives of himself is in response back in chapter 33, verse 18. Moses comes to God and says, please show me your glory. And God responds in verse 19. He says, I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. So what we just read in Exodus 34, this tension, this revelation is what most reveals to us God's glory, his goodness, and who he is. Moses asks for glory. God says, I'll I'll give you a glimpse of my goodness. So goodness and glory go together, right? And then he says this, this is the essence of my glory. I am merciful and forgiving, but I will never leave sin unpunished. This is the essence of who I am. I am perfectly loving and perfectly just. And if you're paying attention from our limited perspective, that is impossible. But God is saying to us here, unless you understand how I can be both of these things, you will never understand my glory. Unless you can get this about me, you will never fully love and appreciate me. This is central to who God is, and this is central to the gospel. This tension between the perfect love and justice of God. And it is this tension that drives the whole book. Of judges. It is this tension, actually, that drives the whole Old Testament. God is just and loving. We've got to see both together. And we see it here in Judges 2. Let's start with just. God's justice. He will by no means clear the guilty. He must and He will punish sin. All sin. And we're going to see that repeatedly throughout this book as God meets out these great and terrible judgments. God's judgment is Justice And listen, you're probably a little uncomfortable even talking about God as a God of judgment. You're probably a little uncomfortable with what God does here. Verse 12, God is provoked by their actions to anger. We're going to stop there because I know what some of you are thinking. Right? Well, I don't, I don't believe in a God of anger and wrath. I believe in a God of, of love. Well, listen, if that's the case, you simply don't believe in the God of the Bible. God without anger is not God. God without anger cannot be a God of love. Anger is not the opposite of love. Anger is not opposed to love. In fact, anger is quite often a direct result of love. Now, we struggle to do this well, but God does not. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is hate. And the ultimate demonstration of hate is apathy. Right? It's when you get, so get to the point, you're like, I'm not even pay attention to you. I don't even... Care to give you my time? If I love my wife, then anything that harms my wife is going to rightly make me angry, and my anger is precisely because of my love for her. Anger flows from love when it sees the loved, th- when it sees the loved threatened and endangered, and as if we've argued, love is seeking the good of the no- of another. Then anger should result when bad is happening to that other, whether as a result of their own actions or the actions of another. One writer says, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, right? That's that's what my wrath is like. When I get angry, it's usually like an outburst. I lose control and I get angry and I get impatient. That's not what God's anger is like. It's not a, a cranky explosion, but it is his settled opposition to the cancer that is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. You see, God wants and desires good for his people. God hates evil, thus God acts in response to evil, and his actions are always just. It actually makes perfectly logical sense, right? When we see a great wrong, when we see someone murdered or someone raped, when we see the the great tragedies going on in the Middle East with ISIS, we see the racial injustices, we are rightly angry, and we cry out for justice. This wrong must be made Right, and that's all God's judgment is. Judgment is His just and right response to our initiative, to our idolatry and sin. Our problem is that we simply don't believe that what we've done is that bad. Right? We be wonder, you know, why does God care so much? Right? My sin's not that big of a deal. At least I'm not Hitler. Right? Or sure, murder, I get that. Be mad about murder. Sure, rape, that's terrible. Be mad about that. But I've never murdered anyone. I've never done anything that bad. So what's the problem. Well, the first and the greatest commandment is that we are to love the Lord our God with everything that we have heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't done a great job of that. None of us do that. In fact, we often do the opposite. What do we do? We ignore God. We go and do our own thing. But what did we just say that was? Ignoring someone was apathy. And what what is apathy? Well, it's the final demonstration of hate. We have ignored God, we have rejected Him, and thus we have hated Him. And listen, this is far worse than murder. I've used um, the illustration um, before. Um, The severity of a punishment is proportional to the value and authority of the one the crime is committed against. Right? Say, um, say Javier and I. I just randomly picked someone. Sorry. Say Javier and I were um, in hanging out at my house one night, and we get in a bit of a tiff. Um, I went to Carolina. He went to Illinois. We beat them in 2005 in the national championship. Um, Javier gets a little bit mad about it. Um, say he punches me in the face. Right? Not cool. Like not not good. And it would hurt because um, he's bigger and stronger um, than me. Um, but. Listen, he's not probably going to get in a whole lot of trouble because it's just me, we're at home, we're friends. It doesn't really matter. I don't really matter. But if Javier were to walk out into the street and find a cop on Roosevelt and punch the cop in the face, he's going to get handcuffed um, and he's going to pay more severely for his crime. But if Javier were to somehow get into the White House and meet the president and then decides to haul off and punch the president in the face... Well, sorry, Mandy, we're not going to be seeing Javier for a very, very long time, right? Why? Why is that? He's done the exact same thing in the three different circumstances. Same action. He punched somebody in the face. It's not the action that matters, right? It's it's the person. The difference is the one to whom the action is Done. It is the value and the authority of the person. The President of the United States has the most authority in the country, the most authority in the world probably. You commit a crime against him, you pay dearly for that crime. The consequences of sin increases with the degree of authority of the one offended. What makes sin so evil is not the ugliness of the action itself, but who the action is committed Against, We have defied God. We have an attempt, metaphorically, uh, attempted to punch God in the face. The most valuable person, the person of unlimited authority, and the consequences are severe. Judgment. Right? Judgment is simply a demonstration of God's justice. Verse 14. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. The hand of the Lord was against them for harm. Those are chilling words. God turned them over to their enemies. That would have been bad enough. But that's nothing compared to the fact that God himself was against them for their harm. And this should give us pause. This is God's right and just response to our initiative, to our sin and idolatry. He is perfect. He is holy. He loves all that is right and good and beautiful. Thus, he has a correspondingly settled disposition against anything that spoils and corrupts that. God hates sin because he loves us. And God will address sin one way or the other. Right? Like a father who learns that his precious daughter is a prostitute and is addicted to drugs. Right, He would be angry. God is angry and God must act. He must respond to our sin or he would no longer be God. So last week we saw our initiative, our sin, our idolatry is a serious problem. God must do something. There must be justice. Sin demands judgment. But thank God for the tension. Because look at this, verse 16, this makes no sense to me. This is not how I would respond. I would have just been done with Israel, not God. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them. There is judgment, then there is deliverance. There is justice, and then there is mercy. But look at Israel. Look at their response to this grace in verse 17. I hope you see as much of yourself in Israel as I see of myself In Israel, Because if you don't, you're not paying attention. Verse 17, deliverance, mercy. 17, yet they did not listen to the judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. The pattern repeats. Verse 18, God raises up judges. He saves them because he has pity on them. Verse 19, they turned their back, and they were more corrupt than before. Do you see the problem? Do do you feel this, this tension? This problem results from who God is in comparison with who we are. His holiness and our sin. How can a perfectly holy and just God do anything other than absolutely wipe such sinfulness out? How can he show any of this mercy to Israel? How can he uphold his covenant and remain just? And that is a great question. But the frustrating part is that judges never gives us the answer. The Old Testament never completely gives us the answer. You're going to get to the end of Judges and you're going to feel unsatisfied because the tension is never resolved. An answer is never given. You read through the Old Testament and you get to the end of Malachi and listen, you're left feeling unsatisfied. You're longing for something more, an answer, a resolution to the tension. But this is on purpose and it's absolutely brilliant. We lose things a lot. I lose things a lot because I'm not... I'm messy and I'm disorganized and Melissa's trying to keep up with my messiness, but we lose stuff and we recently, again, lost this old iPod we had. It's one of the really old ones, big and bulky and old and it had a bunch of our old music on it, um, And so we found it recently and it was just fun to kind of be back. Oh, here's all our old stuff. We haven't listened to this in so long. So last week I was going, you know, Peter preached here and I went and preached at his church and I helped him out with his Bible study last week because he was in the middle of a move. So I was driving down to his church. And I grabbed the iPod. I'm going to listen to some of my good old music. And man, I was I was really getting into it. Uh, I was enjoying. I don't drive much, so I don't get to listen to music. And I was listening to this really old band, not really old, this old band that I love named Sherwood. Um, and there's this song um, called No Better that came on, and it's this it's hauntingly this beautiful song. It's this song about a marriage uh, and a family basically falling apart, and, and it's beautiful and a little bit dark and very tragic. Um, and at the end, there's this long instrumental section, and so I started to get a little bit distracted. I started to think about Bible study and what I was going to be um, teaching and doing. Uh, and, but I was humming along to the chords of the melody, kind of as it kind of was, was finishing. It's like the acapella is in me still a little bit. I kind of sing the, the notes. And I was humming along to the chords, and then all of a sudden, I was singing a chord, but the song was no longer playing. All of a sudden, the song just stopped and the chord never resolved. So you notice that every time the Minzy played up here, we sing, we sing, he plays these things, and then he strums that last chord, which resolves everything. This song never resolved. It was like dun, 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 dun. Stopped. And if you're anything like me, that drives me crazy. It never went dun, 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 dun. There was no, there was no resolution. It said dun, 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 dun. And what happened? I wasn't paying attention, it never resolved, and it grabbed my attention all of a sudden because something wasn't right. All of a sudden I was paying attention because it was so jarring and it left me with a sense of longing, of incompleteness, of this need for closure. Wait, that didn't end like it was supposed to end. Why? Because the artists know what they're doing. They're doing this on Purpose, the lack of resolution at the end of that song drove me back to consider the song. Wait wait a second, why did that song end like that? And it drives me back into the tragedy of the song and the marriage that is falling apart, there is no resolution because marriages aren't supposed to fall apart. And so the, the song just ends on this note of dissonance and of and of longing and of something not being right. The lack of resolution drew me back. To the tragedy of the song, I felt the tension more clearly as a result of the lack of resolution. And that is exactly what God is doing in Judges and in the whole Old Testament. All right, The fact that both close with no resolution, where the cord is just left hanging, we're left with dissonance and no consonants, it grabs our attention. It increases our longing for that resolution because we were created to need resolution. There's a reason that chords work like that. I think music is one of the best evidences of the existence of God. Music makes no sense um, apart from Him. And music, the fact that it resolves and it works so beautifully and that we just want um, this resolution. And the Old Testament does this. It increases our longing for that resolution. And what that does is it increases our appreciation for the resolution when it finally does come. And second, the increased longing for the resolution that never comes as it did with me with the song, it drives us back to the story to examine it more fully. Wait a second, that's not right. That didn't end how it should be. And it makes you consider the song again and in more detail. It drives you to look for hints. It drives you to look for anything that could possibly point us to where resolution might come. I was looking back at the song like maybe there's hope somewhere in here. Maybe the family's going to get back um, together. It drove me back to the song. And that's what the dissonance at the end of the Old Testament drives us to do with the rest of the story. It drives you to look again. And once you're looking, once you feel the tension, once you let it drive you back into the story, you're going to start to see it everywhere. And when you finally start to see it, Because of all the tension, because of all the suspense, because there has been no resolution, you're now going to start to love it and appreciate it even more. The hints and the shadows just further serve to make the real thing, the substance, that much better. But the substance isn't here in Judges chapter 2, but Judges chapter 2 is getting us there. We're feeling the tension between between God's justice and mercy, His judgment and grace. And there are hints of the answer even here. What has Israel done? They've done a lot of things. But what's the core of what they've done? done? It's in verse 20. They have transgressed. They have broken the covenant. Remember the covenant that in verse 1, God had promised to never break. And it is the nature of that covenant that gets us toward our answer. God first makes this covenant with Israel through Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, if you want to go look there for a brief moment. Um, I've talked about this before, but this is really important. Remember, a covenant is just a a formal agreement uh, that binds two parties together in relationship. You get married, you're entering into a covenant. There are expectations, you break those expectations, there are potentially um, consequences for them. God enters and relates with his people um, through these covenants. So God comes to Abraham, he's going to affirm his promises to him, he's about to make his covenant with him, but then God says something really, really strange. He says, "All right, Abraham, I want you to take a bunch of animals, and I want you to cut them all in half, and I want you to arrange them in a row across from each other. Really, really weird. This was a... This was not an oral culture, right? So they didn't, we, we sign a contract or we sign on the dotted line. I do a wedding, I pull the couple in afterwards, they have to sign the form to make it official. That's how you sign it. That's how you agree to it. Well, they didn't do that back then. So what did they do? Well, they they acted out the covenant. What they did is that they would they would very graphically um, kind of demonstrate um, the consequences of breaking covenant. The covenant by acting it out. So walking through the animals was your signing on the dotted line. It was a way way of saying, if I break this covenant that I'm entering into, may what happened to these animals happen to me. If I do not uphold my end of the covenant, may I be cut in half and pay with my life. Right? Really strange. But... Then an even more strange thing happens, and it is one of the most important things to happen in the whole Bible and in, in all of history. And it's the beginning to the answer of our tension. Right, the ceremony's all ready to go. Moses, uh, Abraham's done all this work. He's cut the animals. He's he's laid them out. He's ready um, to ratify the covenant. And then what happens? God knocks him out. God puts Abraham to sleep, and God passes through the animals. And just as significant as who passes through the animals is who does not pass through the animals because Abraham never passes through the animals. Abraham sleeps and God passes through for him and the covenant is made. God acts and then Abraham does nothing. God himself passes through the animals, and in doing so, he is in effect saying, if I do not do everything that I am promising to do, may I be cut into pieces like these animals. May the covenant curses fall on me if I don't keep up my end of the deal. But God always keeps up his end of the deal, right? No worry there. But that's why it's so significant that Abraham never passes through because it means that God is also passing through the animals in Abraham's place. God is passing through the animals for Abraham. So then he is also, in effect, saying, also, Abraham, if you don't keep up your end of the bargain, if you fail to keep the covenant, may I be cursed. May I be cut off in your place. And that's the answer. That is the solution to our dilemma. This is the only way that God can be both just and And merciful. This is the only way that he can maintain both his justice and his love. He promised from the very beginning that he would fulfill both ends of the covenant his and ours. And this right here is the fundamental difference between the gospel and every other religion. This is the only way that God can remain just and loving. How can he forgive sin and punish sin? It is only by this. This is the only way that he can keep pursuing sinful Israel. This is the only way he can keep pursuing sinful us and save us. Because it's here in verse 16 that we first get the name of the book. Go back to Judges 2, verse 16. We finally run into the name of the book. How did God save the people? He saved them through Judges. Now, we're going to look at those Judges specifically for the next few months. Uh, God's people need a judge. But this is a little bit confusing because how we understand the word judge today. Right, we hear the word judge, and we think of someone like Judge Judy, right? you nothing on TV in the afternoon, whatever, I'll watch Judge Judy. Um, so, you know, she's wearing a black robe, she's got a gavel, she's sitting up on the bench. What is she doing? She's hearing arguments, she's hearing defenses, and then she's rendering a judicial verdict. You know not when it's real, right? It's all set up before. Just, Just letting you know, ruining it for you. Um, but that's what we think of when we think of a, a judge, right? They, they stand up, they listen to arguments, and they render verdict. That's not at all what these guys were doing in the Old Testament. They weren't judges in that sense at all. What's strange, actually, is that this is the only place in the whole book that they're actually referred to as judges. None of them are specifically called judges. Look at Judges 3, 9, and 15, over to your right. It says that God raised up for his people what? Raised up for his people not a judge, but a deliverer. Each judge is a rescuer that delivered his people. Verse 16 explains it back in our chapter. The Lord raised up judges who saved them. A couple of scholars I read argue that this book should not have ever been called judges. This book should have been called saviors or deliverers. God's people were sinful and rebellious. They were helpless. They needed a savior. So God sent them these saviors over and over and over again. But as we're going to see, each of these saviors is flawed himself. And they get progressively worse as we go. And after you get done with Samson... At the end of the book, you're basically left feeling hopeless. None of these saviors can actually deliver. None of these saviors can do what we really need them to do. None of them can address our real problem. Exactly. Because these saviors were never supposed to be the answer. These saviors were supposed to be the chord at the end of the song that never resolved. They were supposed to grab our attention, to leave us longing, to leave us wanting more, to leave us looking for resolution. They were supposed to point us forward to a better Savior to come. The Savior, the Judge that they so imperfectly foreshadowed. The one that could resolve the cord and could answer our dilemma. And the only way God could remain just and merciful. You get to the end of the Old Testament and you're honestly left somewhat Disappointed. Maybe there is no answer. No, the judges have all failed. The kings have all failed. The people have been exiled and brought back. Now they are rejecting the Lord again. Is there no hope? And then as you turn the next page, Jesus just bursts onto the scene. And as you start to read about him, you start to notice something different about this one. He's not like the judges and the kings in the Old Testament that have the same problem that we have. He's unique. He, he's special. And it slowly starts to become clear. It's because he's God himself. And all of a sudden, it starts to make sense. Everything starts to fall into place. He says in Mark 10, he said, I came to die as a ransom for many. Why would he, why would he die? He didn't do anything. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that, that God made him to be sin for us. What must God do to sin? What does sin demand? Punishment. And that's what's happening on the cross. God takes our sin, He places it on Christ, He credits it to His account, and then He punishes Him in our place. Listen, that's, that's the gospel. We, we owe an eternal debt for our sin, it must be paid because God is just. But God pays it for us through Jesus Christ. Do you you see what that does? God remains just because he punishes sin. He punishes all of it. And he remains merciful because he can now forgive us because our sin has already been paid for by Christ. God himself up on that cross in the person of Jesus Christ dying for the sins of his people is the only solution to the dilemma of Exodus 34 and the entire Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't make a lick of sense. That's southern. It doesn't make any sense. Sorry. The Old Testament doesn't make any sense without Jesus Christ. He is the only way that God can be both just and and merciful. It is the only way that he can continue to love and to pursue us in spite of our great sin, because he's already dealt with that sin in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans 5:25 says that this makes God both just and the justifier the, the forgiver, the savior. And he can only be both because of Christ's work in our place. This is God's response to our initiative. This is the answer to our sin problem. He could have just left us to pay it for ourselves. But for those who are his, he has paid it for them. And so do you see how this connects to last week? Hopefully you took that questionnaire home and you, you figured out what idols um, you demand, what idols control you and demand your allegiance, right? We submit to those things because we desire what we think that they can offer, right? We always do what we love and what we desire. That's why you have to understand this. Because once you do, once you have felt that tension and seen it in the story, and then once you felt that tension in your heart, Man, this, 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 this can't do it. I still feel this. This isn't uh, enough. I am a sinner. God is holy. How can these two things be reconciled? Once you see the tension in the story, once you see the tension in your heart, and then once you start to understand God's plan and the beauty of it, you start to love it and long for that and desire it. And that new love for this new, great, and glorious thing, this bigger and better love, starts to then crowd out these smaller, inferior loves that had previously dominated you. Listen, you're never going to change or you're never going to do anything differently by just trying harder or by just trying to stop. No, the only thing that will happen is you replace one love with a superior love. That's the only one. We always do what we love. There's got to be a love. So to change or to be saved or to grow or anything, you've got to see this and long for this and recognize this and love this. And that's what starts to change us. Grace is simply the key to everything. Listen, we have a corner on the grace market. We have a monopoly on grace. Everything else is just a cheap substitute. Everything else may masquerade as grace, but this is the only grace that counts. God has done Everything for you. And as you see yourself in Israel rejecting him, hating him, whoring after other gods, and then you see him pursuing you and loving you and dying for you anyways, grace starts to change you. He's done it all for you. He steps on the cross and he says, it is finished. The hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I am Not he paid part of it, or some of it. No, he paid it all, and he sets us free. That's that's what grace is. Everyone else is just preaching some form of merit or achievement. Last fall, our van broke down. I bought a van. Two months later, it breaks down. It was really frustrating. I, I didn't have a van for, for a while. So I don't have a van. I don't have money. Um, and so we weren't sure what we were going to do. We'd buy some really, really old, stinky one. Um, but what did you guys do? Well, you guys, as a church, very graciously and generously, kind, kindly voted to give us $4,000 to pay a down payment on a van. That was insanely kind. We didn't have the money for a down payment like that, right? We could not have bought the van that we did without you guys making that payment for us. But what's been happening ever since then? I've been making the monthly payments on the van. You don't make those payments. For me, now, you, you pay me, so I just want to send, kind of, but don't let, that, don't let that ruin a really good analogy here, all right? You made the initial down payment, but now it's up to me to make those monthly payments, and the rest is on me. I've got to keep making those payments. If I stop making those monthly payments, what happens? The bank takes the car. I, I lose it. It doesn't matter that you graciously gave me $4,000. That's gone. The car is gone because I didn't keep up my end of the deal. I didn't pay the monthly payments. And that, friends, is tragically how most people understand grace. God gets you started. He makes the down payment. But it's up to you to do the rest. No, look at Judges chapter 2. Look at how Israel responds to God's salvation every single time. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, they reject Him. Grace, mercy, and forgiveness, they reject Him even more. That is how we respond um, to it. Right? Israel actions show us that if it was up to us or dependent on us in any way, then we're all doomed. Right? We can't make the recurring payments. I know the sinfulness of my heart. I know that if it was up to me to obey and decline climb that ladder, then I have no hope. And so that's not grace at all. That's just a little bit of grace to get you going. But then the rest is works. The rest is is up to you. But that's what everyone else in the world is teaching. The gospel, however, is so much infinitely better. Yes, God makes the down payment on the car. And he makes the recurring monthly payments for you. He, He didn't say I paid part of it. Now you pay the rest. He says he paid it. All That's what grace is. It is unmerited, unearned favor. It, it is God's riches at Christ's expense. Right? When the judges died, Israel gets worse because the judges couldn't deal with their real problem. But as we're going to celebrate next week, when the judge dies, everything changes because he finishes it. It's complete. He's dealt with the problem. He's resolved the dilemma. The cord has been resolved. Your problem has been answered. Your debt has been paid in full. Not paid in part, depending on you doing the rest. No, paid in full. Now, when God looks at you, He sees Christ. You get His perfect record. You cannot improve on Christ's record. You can't get better than Christ. No, it's finished, it's fixed. It's perfect. He, he finishes it, takes care of the problem. It's not about us at all. Right? The only thing we contribute is the initiative of our sin and idolatry. But as we see here, God so graciously responds. First, listen, he graciously responds in justice. That's grace because if he didn't, then he would no longer be God. Everything would, would fall apart. No, he has to respond in justice. But he responds in justice, not by punishing us for our sin, but by punishing Christ for our Sin, And thus he can then now be free to respond to us in mercy and forgiveness. That's what grace is. Right? That's, that's a God who is worth following and trusting. That is a God so much better than anything else out there. Every other God is demanding that you contribute or sacrifice or, or do something. This God is looking at you and saying, you have nothing to offer me. You've rejected me. You've rebelled against me. You have hated me. But I'm going to pursue you. And I'm going to love you and I'm going to restore you, I'm going to make you my son, it's completely different. There's nothing else like it. And as you see that, and as the tension is resolved in Christ, and as you see your sin up on that cross, the reason why he's there, it changes you, right? You start to say, no, that's, that's what I want. That's, that's worth it. That's the only thing that can fulfill me and deliver for me. That's Christ. That's why he is so much infinitely better than anything else. I can stand here and tell you to do things differently and to be a better person and to stop sinning over and over and over again, and it's going to do nothing until you value Christ. And that's why we preach the gospel every single Sunday. Understand this. Understand who he is and what he has done for you and love that. And that's going to completely change your life. That is so much better than the crap that these idols offer you. That that never deliver. They're going to let you down every single time. They let me down every single time. Because Christ is better. He's what you were designed for. and, And he has given everything for you. And what do you give? Nothing. You gave the sin and the idolatry. And he loved you anyways. And he rescued you. It's a different story. It's a different message, right? That's our only hope for change. That's the only, listen, and if you don't go there, the cord's never gonna be resolved and you're always gonna be left with that tension and that longing. Christ resolves the cord and we were created for resolution and it is only to be found in Jesus Christ. All right. so let me close uh, in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, we confess Um, that we are Israel, or we confess that we are um, sinners, um, that our response to your goodness and grace is so often um, sin and rejection and idolatry. Father, I uh, just desperately thank you. Um, that my standing with you is dependent in no way on myself and on my actions and on my goodness. Father, I, I thank you that everything has been resolved and paid for and answered for in, in Jesus Christ. Father, he's paid it all. Uh, Father, all to him I owe. Not because i got to earn or merit anything. but Father, because I, I love him and I desire him and I want to, to follow him and to serve him. Father, it's a fundamentally different motivation. So Father, I just pray right now that you would do something that I cannot do. Father, I pray for my own heart that I um, would better see and understand Jesus Christ. Um, Father, I pray for everyone in here that they would have a bitter bitter, bigger and better picture of Jesus as a result of Judges chapter 2, as a result of the resolution that you have brought to the great tension that we feel in these stories and and in our lives. And Father, as we get this bigger and better picture, Father, I pray that we would just be bowled over by his grace, that we would want it and that we would long for it and that it would change us, Lord, and may us more like your son, um, Jesus Christ. Father, he's the resolution. Father, he's the only answer um, to the dilemma. Um, Father, help us to see that and to love it and to cling to it with all that we have. We cannot do that on our own. Father, give us grace. Father, grant us faith and repentance for your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.